as many of you will know, last Sunday was a record day for Britain. For the first time since records began, over 130 years ago, a temperature of 100 degrees Fahrenheit was recorded. 100.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 38.1 degrees centigrade in Gravesend in Kent in southern England. And similarly, unusually high temperatures in other parts of Britain. On Monday, I bought a newspaper and it was a headline in all the press. In the Daily Telegraph, it announced, which I take for the crossword I hasten to add, uh, the headline said, Sunday roast, the day Britain reached 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And it showed pictures of people and also of animals enjoying the sun and cooling off. However, the hot weather was a mixed blessing for it brought great suffering as well. Fires continued to ravage southern France, Spain and Portugal. Large numbers of fish perished in oxygen-starved waters and climbers on Mont Blanc were warned about avalanches caused by melting ice. Most serious of all, it's now been reported that up to 3,000 people have died in France due to heat-related causes. There's been a lot of speculation about the reason for this rise in temperatures. Is this a long-term change in weather patterns caused by global warming or is it just a kind of blip that happens over the centuries? There was little suggestion about what, if anything, we could do about the weather other than to wait for it to break, at least in the short term. However, there was also in the newspaper an important, interesting anyway, other item reported. A headline said, the Pope asks people to pray for rain across Europe. Speaking, I noticed, from his summer residence in Castle Condolfo outside Rome, the Pope said, and I quote, I exhort all to raise to the Lord fervent entreaties so that he may grant the relief of rain to the thirsty earth. I suspect that his words fell largely on deaf European ears. For most people in the West believe that the weather is governed solely by natural laws in which supernatural intervention plays no part. And even though the surveys show that the majority of people in our country still believe in God, he is a God who has been relegated from public life and thinking to simply the realm of personal belief. So the thought that God might grant relief to the thirsty earth in answer to prayer seems pretty unlikely to most people. What is absolutely inconceivable is that God should send drought to the thirsty earth in answer to prayer. With all the attendant suffering that would bring, you may ask, as most people would do, what kind of God would do that kind of thing and what kind of person would pray for something like that? Well, the answer simply is the God of the Bible. And a man named Elijah who was studying together on Sunday mornings under the title, The Man Who Prayed. And today's topical topic is praying for drought. Uh, this announcement of drought is found in only one verse in the Old Testament of the Bible. David read it for us in 1 Kings, just the first verse of chapter 17. This is what it says. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, 
as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. The book of James in the New Testament, a passage that we studied together two weeks ago, comments on this event and Elijah as follows. It says, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Now, if this actually happened, and there are actually contemporary records outside the Bible that indicate a serious drought in this region at this time, we need to know why. Why on earth, literally, did Elijah pray for a drought? And why, from heaven, literally, God answered it? And as we do so, I hope we'll learn something about the kind of prayer God answers. Prayed, as James reminds us, by human beings like Elijah, like you and me. And I simply want to suggest this morning three reasons why God answered Elijah's prayer for a drought. Three reasons why God answered Elijah's prayer for a drought. The first one David's touched on in his children's talk. The first reason why God answered Elijah's prayer was it fulfilled the Lord's word. Now, if you've got the Bible open at 1 Kings 17, verse 1, the most surprising thing about the record in 1 Kings is that there is no mention that Elijah actually prayed for a drought. If you don't know the Bible very well, you may think, chapter 17, Elijah. There must be something else about him earlier in the Bible that tells us about him and what he did and the fact that he prayed. But in fact, there is none. Elijah simply bursts onto the pages of Scripture as he bursts into the court of King Ahab. We learn only the briefest of facts about him, where he came from, a place called Tishbe, which is over the east of the River Jordan, in the Transjordan, in the district called Gilead. And then we have this dramatic statement that he makes that we'll come back to again and again. Look at it for the first time again, or second time again. Look what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain these next few years except at my word. Now, many people who appeared in royal courts in those days did so with a fair degree of trepidation. And from what we know of King Ahab, that would have been a very smart move. And the usual reason why people appeared in the court of a king was for a petition or a supplication. They wanted something from the king. An appeal from the lesser to the greater. But with Elijah and Ahab, notice how interesting. It's as though the roles are reversed around. So that what Elijah says is no supplication. He doesn't come and ask Ahab for anything. It's a proclamation. He tells him what's going to happen. And the reason for this is that Elijah has come from a higher court than that of Ahab. He has come from the highest court of all, the court of heaven. The court of the God of Israel, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Notice what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. That's a paraphrase, literally in the Hebrew it says, before whom I stand. It's the picture of the servant in the ancient court. What does he do? He stands like a statue next to the king and he's just waiting for the king to tell him to do something. And as soon as he does it, he's off. 
he is standing in the presence of the king. So Elijah stands before the king of kings in heaven, and having received his instructions from heaven, he then conveys them to the lesser court of King Ahab on earth. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain these next few years except at my word. There is no presumption on the part of Elijah when he says, my word. For my word is the Lord's word. And now we begin to understand a little more clearly the first thing we need to learn about prayer from this story. And that is the very vital link that exists between prayer and proclamation. And why James focuses on the fact that he prayed, while 1 Kings focuses on the fact that he proclaimed. In prayer, we listen to what God says to us. In proclamation, we declare what God has said. And both elements are essential for those who wish to serve the Lord like Elijah faithfully. But prayer must precede proclamation. Otherwise, how will we know what the Lord wishes us to say or to do? So prayer precedes proclamation. Yet how often we get these two things the wrong way around? We begin when we pray with our agenda. What we want to say to God. What we want God to do. And often, having announced it, we then pray or even tell God what we would like him to do. You see, prayer at its simplest is communication, amazing communication, between the human and the divine, between human beings and God. But in this conversation, if you want to put it on that level, in this conversation, God always speaks first. And we respond to what God says to us, not vice versa. So, why did Elijah then specifically pray and then proclaim that it was, would not rain? Was he just sitting there one day bemoaning the faith of his nation and suddenly thought, I've got a great idea, I know what I'll do. I'll pray that it won't rain. No, there is a much firmer and stronger basis on which to pray. One, one that Elijah used and one that David pointed out to us. Long before, in the time of Moses, there's a record of what God said through Moses before Moses departed the earthly scene, he brought the people of Israel to the edge of the promised land. And he was about to leave. He didn't enter the promised land. Joshua was about to take over with his next in command. And the book of Deuteronomy that David read from in the children's talk is the last words of Moses to the people of Israel. And he looks ahead and he's giving them his final advice and instructions from the Lord. It's worth looking again at the passage that we read before. If you turn back to Deuteronomy 11 again, It's page 190. And you will see the basis on which Elijah prayed. There's the promise in verse 13. If you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, then I'll send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I'll provide grass in the fields for your cattle. You'll eat and be satisfied. Here's the warning. Be careful or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord your God is giving you. 
fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds, and so on. He says, remember this very carefully. And you see, what Moses feared had come to pass in Elijah's day. The people of Israel had been enticed and turned away to other gods. But here's the key fact. It looked, it looked as though God's warnings were empty, for nothing happened. The rains came, the crops grew, the people pl- flourished. In fact, during the time of Ahab was a time of economic boom in Israel. Everybody was doing very well. And most of the people in Israel couldn't care less about what God had said in his word. But there were a few godly people in Israel, we learn later 7,000 of them in fact, like Elijah, who were desperately sad to see what had happened to the nation of Israel. That God's people had turned away from him. What were they concerned about? They were concerned about the honour of God's name. That God had said something and it looked as though it wasn't happening. That God's promises were empty. And so Elijah, thinking and praying about this, applies what God has already said in his word to the contemporary situation in which he lived. As the basis for believing prayer. He applied it to the present. There may in fact be another piece of evidence here that some commentators and writers think is in this story uh, that points out that it was God's will for him to pray at this particular time. You, You may not notice this, but in the Old Testament account it said that the drought lasted for three years. In the New Testament, in the book of James that we read, and also the Lord Jesus Christ quoted in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, that it lasted three and a half years, not three years. And some people have said, well, what's the discrepancy? There is six months difference here. And many people believe that what actually happened was that the drought had already been in existence for six months. And Elijah, seeing that, recognized that it was the beginning of God's judgment and began to pray accordingly. He discerned it was the beginning of judgment on God's people. So the kind of prayer that God answers is the prayer that fulfills his word. That is based on his promises and his warnings. Now this presupposes, of course, that you know what the Bible says and what God has promised in his word and what he's like and what he's said in the past. And although the specific warnings of the book of Deuteronomy don't apply to us because they were specifically given to an Old Testament community, we live under a new covenant through Jesus Christ in which the promises are far better but the warnings are far more severe. And the general principle still holds true. When I am praying, is my prayer request in accordance with God's word? If so... I can pray in confidence, pray in faith. Faith is meditating on God's word, thinking about what God has said, and then applying it to a contemporary situation. And prayer is the means by which God prompts us to apply that word at a particular time, at his time. And when that happens, you can be sure, even though it's not yet happened, that it's done. That's why Elijah was so confident. Because my word, says Elijah, is the Lord's word. Now, the New Testament gives us even greater assurance in prayer. Writing his first letter, this is what the Apostle John says about the confidence we have. You should know these verses if you're a Christian. I mean, they're absolutely vital verses. He says, I write these things 
to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, here it is. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that what we have what we have asked of Him. So Elijah's prayer for drought is answered by the Lord because it fulfills His word. That's the first thing. The basis for everything else. But having prayed like that, why did Elijah need to proclaim what he had prayed in public? Why didn't he and the other godly people of Israel just keep it to themselves and kind of rejoice when it happened because the people were suffering and it served them right? Content that the Lord was doing something about the terrible things that King Ahab was trying to do. The answer lies in a second reason why the Lord answered Elijah's prayer for drought. Not only did it fulfill the Lord's word, but secondly, it demonstrated the Lord's power. His prayer demonstrated the Lord's power. One among many of the problems with multi, what's called multi-faith worship is that it assumes that all religious people pray to basically the same God and pray happy and harmoniously, happily and harmoniously together, if not benefit by their pooled understanding of who God is. Now, there is nothing new in this approach. It was very popular in Elijah's day. It's called, if you want a fancy word for it, it's called syncretism, where you mix up all the religions together. Just 50 years before Ahab came to the throne, about 56 years in fact, was the glorious day of Solomon, King Solomon, the, one of the greatest kings of Israel. And Israel was at a fantastic height and peak. Its empire spread, its wealth was known throughout the whole world, certainly the ancient world anyway. And Solomon built this fantastic temple to the Lord. You probably know the story of Solomon's temple. And as the temple was being dedicated, Solomon bowed down in prayer before the Lord and he prayed. And he sought the Lord's help. And he reminded the people of all the warnings that would happen if they turned away from the Lord. One of them he quoted. 1 Kings 8 verse 35. When the heavens are shut up, there is no rain because your people have sinned against you. Now sadly, Solomon failed to practice what he preached. By the end of his life, under the influence of many foreign wives, he had tolerated the worship of idols alongside the worship of the one true God. And now, just seven kings down the line, 56 years on, we come to the desperate state of King Ahab and his rule. What Solomon had done at the end of his reign, Ahab did at the beginning of his reign. What Solomon had done in private, Ahab did in public. While Solomon fell into sin, Ahab lived in sin. And while Solomon's regime tolerated other idols alongside the worship of the Lord, Ahab's regime, prompted by his wife, his foreign wife Jezebel, was determined to stamp out the worship of the one true God. The reason for this was, and still is, that multi-faith worship, which prides itself on tolerance, is totally intolerant of any religion or faith which claims exclusive knowledge of God. And so, as Ahab consolidated his rule, it looked as if Jezebel was about to succeed. The worship of the Lord was about to be extinguished in Israel. But God had, and always has at the lowest point, his own plans and purposes. The old commentator Matthew Henry puts it well. 
Never was Israel so blessed with a good prophet as when it was so plagued with a bad king. And Elijah's proclamation, therefore, tells us that God has not opted out of this situation. His proclamation throws down the gauntlet. As the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there'll be neither dew nor rain these next few years except at my word. Now, the name Elijah is a very significant name. It means in Hebrew, my God is the Lord, or Yahweh, or Jehovah in old language we used to call it. This man stands up in the court of King Ahab and he says, you might have your own gods, but my God is the Lord. And he's not just my God, he is the Lord, the God of Israel. And he is throwing down the gauntlet. You see, Ahab had set up all these foreign gods. We know a little bit about them from contemporary history, from excavations. We know the kind of gods and worship that they indulged in. The main god was called Baal. He was honoured as the god of the heavens, and especially the moon. And he had a female counterpart, who was called Asherah or Astarte. That's what it means in the previous chapter, they erected a pole. It was a kind of monument to Asherah, to this goddess. And together people believed, in those days, the religion that was promoted, that was incredibly popular, although you never hear of it today, This religion was a combination of these two deities coming together. And their physical union was expressed sexually. Male and female. And they believed because of this, it produced fertility. So that your crops grew and the rain came. It's all about the weather in fact. Not surprisingly, if you were involved in this kind of worship then sexual debauchery, along with male and female cult prostitution, was part of the religious package. Because you were reenacting what the gods were doing in a religious context. And also, not surprisingly, the, the legitimization of sex by religion proved, as it still proves, very popular. And the worshippers were ensured, as long as we carry on with this kind of religion, we'll have good crops and everything will go well and there'll be an economic boom in Israel. And if you were there and you said, well, hang on a minute, I'm not sure this is right, then the pragmatists would say, well, it works, doesn't it? We're doing really well in Israel. The crops have never been better. The economy's never been stronger. The stock market's never been higher. Until one day, this strange figure comes into the court of King Ahab and he says, I've got an announcement to tell you. The Lord says, there ain't going to be any more rain until I say so for years. You see, what Elijah is doing, he's challenging current thinking, political correctness. The possibility that Baal and the Lord could coexist together. It is a prayer challenge, and the focus is, who controls the weather? You say Baal. Okay. I say the Lord. And the Lord says, it's not going to rain for the next few years. Now, if Baal really is the god of the weather, as you claim, then let him send the rain. And if he cannot, then it's time you realise there is only one God, the Lord. See, Elijah puts his life on the line. The Lord's honour on the line, as he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except my word. He challenges religious thinking at its strongest point. He says, right, the big issue here is fertility and the weather. Right, here's this prayer challenge. 
Who controls the weather? Is it Baal or the Lord? And as soon as Elijah had announced this, as quickly as he had come, he disappeared. I have no doubt there were a few political courtiers who coughed and said, just a religious nutcase, your majesty. One born every minute, O king. Nothing to worry about, O mighty one. But as the period for what were called the former rains from late October to early January passed without a break in the clouds, followed by the latter rains from April to early May, let alone the absence of the nightly heavy dew that brought fertility to the land every day, which irrigated and drenched it, the king did begin to worry, and even more so when one year was followed by two years, and two years was followed by three years. You see, Elijah's prayer was a challenge to the supposed power of Baal. And we'll come to it, God willing, a couple of weeks. It climaxes in a fantastic prayer challenge on Mount Carmel, which lasts only a few hours. And Elijah says, The God that answers by fire, let him be the Lord. Make your mind up. And of course, it is no contest. Now behind all our prayers, which takes them out of the realm of the trivial, behind all our praying, if it is real prayer, there is a spiritual conflict going on for the hearts and souls and minds of men and women and of nations and of the church of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says there's this great conflict in writing to the Christians in Ephesus. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle... It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And having described those pieces of armour that you should be familiar with if you're a Christian, you should be putting on every day, at the end of it, he concludes with the great weapon of all prayer. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, he says, for me, a preacher of the gospel, be alert, keep on praying for all the saints. Pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may deliver it, declare it fearlessly as I should. Now the prayer request that the Lord answers. They're not just to do with our own trivial concerns, although God is concerned with the little details of our lives. But behind it all is a great spiritual battle. And the prayers that God will answer are the prayers that demonstrate the power of the Lord. And that power is no more seen than in the preaching of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, where people are delivered from the power of Satan and transferred to the kingdom and power of God and of Jesus Christ. It is to do with the triumph of the gospel. And again, surely this puts all our prayers in a different kind of context, doesn't it? If we really believe this, I tell you this, and I don't do it to put a guilt trip on you. If we really believe this about prayer, there'd be a lot more people at our Tuesday prayer meetings. There'd be a lot more of us praying before the service instead of three or four people that you can count on one hand and bless their souls that they're there praying for this service. If you thought that during this service there was a spiritual battle going on for the lives and souls of individuals sitting in this congregation, we'd be there praying about it. But we have trivialised prayer. We've personalised it, we've involved it as something to do with selfish, with our own concerns largely, not with God's greater honour and glory, and we don't recognise the battle that is going on behind the scenes. But God answers prayer that fulfils his word 
and demonstrates his power. That's the second thing. Here's the third thing, finally, shorter than the rest, all right. God answers prayer, answered Elijah's prayer, finally, because it revealed the Lord's love. Now you may ask, how could a drought which lasted three and a half years and produced so much suffering possibly be evidence of God's love? Well, it all depends. It depends if you think physical deprivation and suffering is the worst possible thing that can happen to people. If you think that a power blackout in the eastern United States and Canada is a far worse thing than the spiritual darkness in which people wander. You see, how can a doctor who takes the Hippocratic Oath cut pieces of flesh out of people? Only if it's for the greater good of that person. And in fact, the greatest love is to act. The greatest sign that you don't care is not to do anything and let them die. And so it is with the Lord's people. God's people had abused God's gifts. They turned away from the giver to other gods who were no gods at all. They had neglected God's laws and followed after other gods and their own lusts. They had ignored his judgment. We don't have time to look at it, but the last verses of chapter 16 tell us that God fulfilled the judgment that he had pronounced on Joshua all those years before on anyone who rebuilt the city of Jericho. He said, anybody who does it, his son will die when it starts and he'll lose another son when it finishes. And they saw it for themselves and they ignored it. So now what can the Lord do? Well, the Lord could abandon them to suffer the consequences of their sin, the eternal consequence of their sin. Or he can send temporal judgment on them in the hope that they might finally pay attention. And so Elijah, not out of any sense of vindictiveness, but out of a desperate love for his people, he prays to the Lord, Lord, nothing else has worked. Send a drought on these people. I was thinking about this this week. Some of us are concerned about family and friends who don't know the Lord. I say this carefully, but think about it for a moment. Someone sometimes says, well, they've got everything in life. Everything's going fine for them. They don't think they need the Lord. So what would you pray for them? Would you not pray for them that Lord God might send some disaster into their lives that might wake them up before it's too late? You say, what kind of love is that? It's love that has the ultimate concern of the eternal welfare of people, of family and friends. We don't pray that lightly. Don't do it vindictively. We say, Lord, whatever it takes, Wake up, my son, my daughter, my father, my mother, my neighbor, my loved one, my husband, my wife. Whatever it may be, it is a sign of God's love. You see, the drought reveals God's love. Think about your own experience. Most of us, if we did a straw poll in this church about how you came to faith in Christ, if you're a Christian, most of us came to faith in Christ through adversity. Is it not true? You didn't come to Christ because your life was prosperous and you said, gosh, it's so wonderful, I want to give thanks to God. Prosperity turns us almost inevitably into self-reliance. Adversity turns us back to God. So it is with nations. So it is with churches. What is God's greater plan for his church? In these days when the church in the West is in decline, as we sang, it's riven by dissent and compromise. 
Interestingly, once again, centered on sexual behavior. Isn't it interesting, the connection? Will God's plan fail? Will God abandon his people? Thank God, no. May only be a remnant, a small number. But he will send judgment. Writing his first letter to the Christians in the Gentile world who were facing severe suffering, notice how the Apostle Peter interprets what is happening to them. 1 Peter 4.17, another verse you should know if you're a Christian. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not believe the gospel? Very sobering verse of scripture. Not on many calendars. So let me finish. Almost done. Two tough questions. The first one we sought to answer. What kind of God would answer a prayer and send a drought on a nation? Answer? The God of Elijah, the God of Israel, the one true and living God. Why? Because it fulfilled his word, demonstrated his power, and revealed his love. Now, a much tougher and far more important question. Think carefully. What kind of God would refuse a prayer and send his son to a cross? When he prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. What kind of God would send his perfect, innocent, sinless son to a cross to suffer his wrath and bear the sin of the world? Answer? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because on that cross, God fulfilled all his promises, demonstrated his power, and revealed his love. And that's why we're here this morning. Praise God. And if you're not a Christian, this is the place you need to come, to the foot of the cross, where God's wrath and his mercy meet. Let's pray together.